Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. I'm Victor Orban. I'm keeping that, Jack, just so you know. <laughs> no, no, you can't. You can't keep that because if people don't do your Patreon game, they're not going to listen to In the Weeds and they're not going to know what that's a reference to. No, they're more intrigued than ever. Oh, my God. Well, I'm Jack Schneider for those of you who don't, uh, <laughs> who apparently don't listen to the show, but who are also not Patreon supporters. Well, Jack, we actually have an exciting announcement. Um, I know it's December. I know this is the month of your birthday, but I know that today is not your birthday. I'll give you um, a hint. It's the okay. thing you look forward to all year. Oh, the Graduate Student Research Contest. Yes. Got it. Yes, that is that is the best. Uh, so if you are a regular listener, you know all about this already. You're all set. You have already submitted. If you are not a regular listener, if you're a new regular listener, then the Graduate Student Research Contest is really easy to enter. Just go to haveyouheardpodcast.com and look for the tab there that tells you how to enter. It's a really easy submission process that requires just like a paragraph description of your research. And uh, we've had incredible submissions over the years. And uh, the episodes with our winners and runners-up are among our very best episodes and definitely some of my very favorite episodes, which I guess implies that some of my favorite episodes are not our best episodes. They're the ones where you would talk the most, I would That's guess. right, exactly. Yeah, I really like those. I just like to sit in my car and listen to myself. Um, so uh, enter and uh, the winner and runner-up will appear on the podcast, look at their own episodes. And uh, if you are not a graduate student, if you're a professor or you've got a graduate student in your life, then just send them a little note that says, hey, I listened to this amazing podcast called Have You Heard? They've got a graduate student research contest and you should enter it. And if you want bonus points, you can like copy the URL for them and send it to them in, e in an email so that all they have to do is click on the link. Or have your assistant copy it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing much to undermine the perception that professors are just elites who sit in their ivory towers, Jennifer. You are actually recording right now in an ivory tower. I've never <laughs> seen you up so high. <laughs> it stays cool up here, uh, which is pretty nice. Well, we have an episode to get to, Jack, and to give you a little taste of where we're going, I thought that I would present you with a quote and see if you can... <laughs> Guess who it's from. And the where and the when is really important. This statement was made in New Hampshire. Think about that. New Hampshire, New Hampshire. What happens there? In 1996. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. Today, in too many of our schools, our children are being robbed of their innocence. Their minds are being poisoned against their Judeo-Christian heritage, against America's heroes, and against American history against the value of faith and family and country. How many guesses do I get? Three. Okay, that's actually, I, I can do this, I think, because you gave me the year. Um, all right, it's a little late for this person to be the person, but Lynn Cheney. No. 
Okay, no, there's not. Oh, I wish like I had an, a buzzer sound yeah, to make. There's not even like a no, but you're close. Okay, so I'm not close. Um, um, Rush Limbaugh. Second strike. Oh, 96. I feel like he ran for president. Uh, um, um, oh, my God. Why, why am I forgetting his first name? Buchan- um, Pat Buchanan. Oh, this is just unbelievable. I can't yeah. believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack, I am so impressed. I thought for sure that this was totally going to stump you. So, yes, it was Pat Buchanan. He was announcing his second presidential run in New Hampshire yeah. in 96. And he goes on to say that he's going to be the president of the parents. He is going to be a parents' rights president. Wow, and he was really ahead of his time there. He he was really ahead of his time. And I think, you know, a, a number of people have pointed out that that the Republican Party today is really Pat Buchanan's party, but mm. for me, the interesting through line here is that parents' rights was there all along Mm -hmm. and that, you know, we sort of forgot about it during the era of bipartisan education reform, but boy, is it back today. It was definitely there in the 1990s, but of course it was there far earlier, half a century earlier. We can see the kind of parental rights movement emerging in uh, the wake of the desegregation movement in response to perceived secularization of the schools. I think one thing that's interesting is that it kind of goes undercover in the second half of the 20th century because Milton Friedman and his disciples give it a kind of sheen of respectability, right? It becomes about markets and uh, the power of choice. It's not about politics. It's not about people's idiosyncratic personal worldviews. It's about, you know, a more effective way of organizing the schools and governing the schools. and I think that uh, it begins to reemerge uh, when that uh, free market-oriented vision begins to succeed. We then see people coming out and overtly talking about the things that uh, they're actually interested in, right? They tend not to actually be interested in um, market theory. They're actually interested in things like pursuing their own uh, religious worldviews or um, you know, uh, acting out their views about race. Well, Jack, those are big questions that I think we're going to need to enlist the help of an expert to unpack. Fortunately, we have somebody standing by. (laughs) Are you going to introduce that person or are you just going to leave it as a cliffhanger for people? Uh, I am. Our special guest today is John Hale. He is an associate professor of education policy at the University of Illinois in my former hometown, Urbana-Champaign. And he's the author of a really great new book called The Choice We Face, How Segregation, Race, and Power Have Shaped America's Most Controversial Education Reform Movement. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation with John. John is a historian of education, but also focuses very much on contemporary policy issues and thinks, you know, in really smart ways about um, race and about power and about uh, politics. And all of this is, of course, really important in trying to understand the current so-called parents' rights movement, um, the CRT battles we're seeing in the schools, and this long history of um, trying to decide, you know, who gets to have a say in the way our schools are run. Well, Jack, you stand by, but you are not off the hook. I suggest getting your tweed jacket at the ready because I'm going to have some questions for you as well. I'll get all of my tweed jackets ready, Jennifer. (laughs) 
If you're a regular listener to this show, then you know that whenever we have an education historian on the program, we have a stock question we like to ask them. This thing that's happening right now, has it happened before? John Hale says that watching the current fury over a parents' rights feels deeply familiar. And, you know, in some ways it's haunting because we actually kind of know how this plays out. In this case, parents asserting rights that they've never really been granted before, but think that they have. But then also the issues about what we teach and how we teach it. And then who determines the best education, not only for children, but also for for the public good, right? And these are perennial debates that just keep coming up. As you heard earlier when I shared that gem from a Pat Buchanan stump speech, parents' rights is an old cause. But John says that when you look back further, what's striking is how recent that cause really is. Well, when you look at the longer history, this is going back to you know the colonial era when we were discussing what education should be. And even really back in the early republic, discussing should we have education and what should it look like? It was almost always in the context of how is this going to relate to the governance of either the colonies or the country? So there's this inherent connection to a public good. We've somehow lost that sort of thread, but that's the historic sort of question. It was never a question about, well, to what extent should parents control it? It was to what extent are parents going to contribute to this larger initiative, to this larger network of schools that is for the public good, is for the maintenance and well-being of our collective community in this struggle to create a more perfect union. In fact, as John has followed the increasingly heated rhetoric around the rights of individual parents, he's struck by what's missing from the debate. That would be any talk of education as a public good. Somehow that has just been lost, distorted, and repackaged to really angry parents demanding a right to determine their child's education. But literally, as as we're reading, going into the classroom, finding out what they want to know, just sort of these unprecedented rights, just walk into school, demand answers, and then make essentially policy decisions based on that, right? And that's highly problematic. And and, and there's no historic context given when we talk about that. John, one thing I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about is the fact that we fund our schools with taxpayer dollars. To me, that seems like a nice beginning of a conversation with people about why parents don't have the exclusive right to shape what's happening in schools because they aren't the customer. In fact, nobody's the customer here. I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit about how we fund schools, why that decision was made, what the implications there are for who schools should be responsive to. We use and have used local public tax dollars to fund a system of public education because it has always been understood that these schools are for a larger public good. They serve a collective good. And because it's a, it's a public service that we need to sort of function as a community and as a larger society, that this should be funded by shared funding mechanisms such as a local property tax. As flawed as it is, we have developed this system Going back, I mean, it really takes place in the 19th century in the Northeast. We know this history with Horace Mann in Massachusetts, that they're arriving at the structure to this funding structure to fund public schools through public dollars. And they make the argument that, well, even if you don't have children, you will be taxed because everybody's going to benefit from this. So since the origin of a public school system, 
we have only known local property tax dollars to fund this. It's highly flawed, but to your point, the fact remains that we use this shared public mechanism to fund public schools. And that means we have a shared commitment that no one parent or group of parents can determine how that public money is spent, especially if they're not elected and they're not held accountable by public guidelines. That's just nowhere in our in any state constitution. So Jack, I want to put you on the spot here because I think what was so interesting about what we just heard from John is that we are in this sort of weird moment of uncharted waters and we need your help understanding how we got here. I got the strong sense listening to John that something has changed. And I'm guessing that you know what it is because this is one of your favorite topics. I believe it's something that you thought a lot about when you were in grad school. Where was that again? (laughs) Okay, well, what you are alluding to is change over time there, Jennifer, and that's what history is. So let me uh, put on my historian's tweed jacket here and offer folks a quick overview of uh, how the purpose of public education has changed and morphed a little bit over time. And as you also alluded to, I'll be drawing a little bit here on David Labry's research. So David identifies three goals in public education, uh, democratic equality, and that's the goal that really animated the origins of what was then called the common school movement. The idea was that in order to live in a democratic society where people would uh, be relatively equal stakeholders, and you know, there's a massive caveat there for uh, relatively since at the time many people were still held in bondage. So we're, we're not talking about everyone here, although certainly it becomes more inclusive over time. Um, The aim of democratic equality was to prepare people for citizenship, to live in an increasingly diverse society. Again, we need to treat this with some caveats about who was included fully or even partially at the time. And uh, that that vision of schools as um, not just a place that could serve instrumental aims in preparing young people to participate in American life, but also would serve this aim of bringing them together uh, as a kind of good in its own right, uh, was one that we really saw in the 19th century and early 20th century. The second goal that he talks about is social efficiency. And we really start to see that in the late 19th, early 20th century. And social efficiency is motivated by this idea that the benefits of education should return value to taxpayers. So whereas we are wearing our citizen hats in democratic equality, we are wearing our taxpayer hats in social efficiency. The idea is that we can prepare people to participate in American life and really in the economic life of the nation because again, we are taxpayers in this perspective. And so we want to get the greatest return for the smallest investment. And so we see things like tracking arise in the early 20th century, motivated by this underlying aim of social efficiency, slotting everybody for their ostensibly appropriate roles. And we, of course, want to be pretty skeptical about this one because we know that low-income kids and racially minoritized kids are the ones who most often get tracked for um, lesser occupations, lesser futures. And then David talks about this third goal, 
social mobility, which we really see rising in the mid-20th century. And this is the one that is most pertinent to our story here. And so instead of being citizens or taxpayers, in this aim, we are private individuals uh, seeking our own self-interest. So people saw, particularly in the 20th century, that school was one way of getting ahead socially and economically. And, you know, not irrationally, began trying to use the schools as a way of advancing their own interests. And this is what really gets picked up by libertarians, by uh, market-oriented conservatives who then see schools as this mechanism not for any sort of collective uh, or public good, but really as a mechanism for advancing private aims, individual goods. And so... This is something that we want to really be aware of when we are listening to the case being made against public education because that case is often tapping into this individualist mentality where we are being asked to think of ourselves just as private entities seeking our own self-interest um, rather than as members of a public, right? We're being asked to think about the private good rather than the public good here. And we need to remember that the schools have always served multiple aims, but the one that has really been on the decline for the past hundred years has been democratic equality. And that's the one that so many advocates and activists are seeking to reanimate here. But the pull of social mobility because it does return immediate value that people can see for themselves uh, is a really strong one. Thank you, Jack. That was excellent. You can now take off your tweed jacket. Wait, <laughs> you've got on another tweed jacket under yeah, it's, it. It's, it's, it's a tweed on tweed. Back to John Hale. One of the arguments he makes in his excellent book, The Choice We Face, is that we really start to see this shift away from the language of education as a public good to a private one in the 1950s. And of course, there was a supreme reason for that. The origins of this, right, you can trace this to the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954, because at that moment, the public good changes. The public good changes in a lot. There's a significant, very vocal, angry minority that stand up and say, this is no longer a public good because they're afraid it will no longer benefit them. So as the country takes a moral shift to say that the public good now includes integration, just attempting equal access to break down barriers that have historically denied people entry into public schools. Once that becomes a public good, people are adamantly opposed and they say, you are now invading my individual rights. I don't believe in those rights. You can't tell me that this is a public good. In other words, the language of individual rights that now shapes the entire way we think about education had its origins in racial backlash. And John says that an entire legal and rhetorical structure basically evolved to accommodate parents who no longer wanted to be part of that public. So we begin to search for ways to sort of justify right, your anger, to justify that this isn't me, I'm, I, I want out of this system now. So what's so convenient, but also strategic, and it makes sense in this sort of market sort of logic, is that, well, if we look at this as an individual right and no longer a public good, 
they ask the question, well, what happens if the public good no longer applies to me? What rights do I have as an individual to protect my interests, my money, my children? And this is where we talk about Labore's, you know, social mobility. How do we individualize this and privatize this? And this is exactly what happens. We begin to create a legal edifice, a legal structure, and a rhetorical one to go back to individual rights. So beginning in the 1950s, say, well, it's my right to determine where I go to school because I don't agree with the way the public is moving. So let's go to the Constitution. Well, we have a freedom of association. This big, bad government can't tell me who to associate with. I don't want to go to school with certain people. And you have no constitutional right to tell me that. So I'm going to reinterpret this and say, well, I have a right to go to school. And you have to protect my right because this is what the Constitution says. There's one more piece to this privatization puzzle. That would be the free market fever that developed partly in response to the Red Scare. There's also this market logic. So in the 19... 50s in the in the post-war Cold War era, there's also a larger struggle going on of capitalism, right, and democracy versus communism. Well, it doesn't sound like a communist state to tell me where to go to school. This is democracy, and this is a free market. I am free to choose how I want. I'm free to choose where I want to go to school. So it, the, the confluence of events and factors create a new individual right that sort of picks up with a very vocal and angry minority. So in the 1950s, we have this birth of a new privatization movement that resonates with with, what we call it the silent majority, but is really a vocal privileged minority that are claiming this right and then creating, and they have the privilege and, and of course the money and resources to make this a new reality. And this is what we're doing today. So there you have it. In fine, have you heard fashion? We've just laid out for you how the parents' rights movement, which seems like it came out of nowhere, is actually a retread of various older causes, except that there is something really different about this particular moment, starting with the language that's being used. Case in point, John's book is filled with evocative descriptions of parent protests that feel like they could be ripped from the headlines. But if you scan the index of the book, as I did in preparation for this show, you'll find no mention of parents' rights. Parents' rights, I mean, it's very new, right? I mean, how we're using this as as a new sort of policy directive. We've seen iterations of this in the past. In the 1950s and 1960s, you'll literally see placards and and posters and and protests of whites parenting. It'll say, white rights. Whites have rights too. White parents have rights. It was a racialized and individualized sort of right. The parents' rights movement, the very recent movement that we're seeing now, is just an iteration of that. So it's not in the index because people weren't using that language to say parents have rights. I'll say individuals have rights, and they may make reference to the family or have the funding follow the individual or the family. But this is, I think, sort of a more of a recent strategic move to take advantage of this ground, this groundswell of support that you're seeing at school boards. Like, how do you capture this movement? How do you put it in language? How, how can you create the rhetoric and discourse to really sort of galvanize the right and parents' rights, you know, resonates with a lot of people. But I would say that's an ahistoric concept. Parents have never really said, these are parents' rights. You know, we have talked about it, but not in the specific context that we did today. This is a new phenomenon to be to continue the privatization that really began in the 1950s. One thing that I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you, John, is the idea of 
the public and the question of who the public is. And it seems like one of the implications here is that if the public is like me, then I'm okay with the public. And some of us have much broader understandings of what it means to be like me, right? <laughs> For many of us, it's simply that you're a human being, right? You're a human being, you're like me, we're the public together. But other people have much tighter understandings of what it means to be like me. And as our democracy becomes more inclusive over time, these understandings of the public also shift. And we can see that really clearly in the schools. It doesn't happen only in the schools. Uh, it happens all across social and political life. But we can see it perhaps most clearly in the schools as people work to essentially create private communities within the public. And so one way we can think about that is to think about the rise of the school district boundary as being something that is really inviolable um, we can think, for instance, about the Milliken case, where Detroit was trying to integrate its schools by essentially absorbing surrounding white school districts, and parents made the case, no, actually, uh, we have the right to our inviolable school district boundaries, and as a result, they were able to essentially continue to privatize public dollars, which were available really only to people in that particular community. Uh, who tended to be white, uh, that they were also privatizing essentially the spaces that children could be schooled in. And I'm wondering, how do we get from there to the tightest possible definition of the public, which is really just me and my immediate family, right? It seems like that is the direction that things move over time as the public becomes more expansive and more inclusive people's understandings of the public that they want to belong to often become smaller and narrower. But now we're at a point where many people have narrowed these boundaries of the public so tightly that it really encompasses just a single address, right? Their address. Yeah. So that, that's a large question. And I think if we had eight hours, I mean, you, this is a semester long question, right? So I'll do my best, but th there's so many great questions in there in, in issues. You know, looking at the Millikan, maybe starting with the Millikan decision and how we use boundaries and erect these literal walls to protect public dollars from going too far outside of your immediate public, right, is a legal repercussion of this pushback against the Brown decision. Because the public good, in order to maintain a public good of, of an integrated public good, you have to actually go across boundaries because people were running away from it, right? Beginning in the 1950s, there were numerous people upset, various actors and communities upset with public education. Of course, there's a conservative segregationist community, if you will, who are just angry at the fact that they have to integrate schools. So they begin to pull out. They begin to create, again, the legal and financial means to sort of privatize education. They say, well, this is no longer my public. Let's just pull out of this system altogether. And then you have the well-intended white parents who like the idea of integration, but they turn on the news and they see urban unrest. They see, quote unquote, rioting. They see angry white parents throwing Molotov cocktails and stones at buses. They hear stories about having to put your child on a bus, God forbid, for a half hour. Civil rights activists, some civil rights activists begin to say, we're not going to go to a public school where we have an angry white teacher disciplining my child or calling the police. Let's have community controlled schools. 
So there's a lot of people who sort of begin abandoning this project. I would like to second John there in acknowledging that my co-host's question was a monster. And don't worry, John isn't done yet. What he's getting at here is that after this pivotal point post-Brown v. Board, people are still talking about the public good, but its meaning has changed. The public good becomes very fractured. And by the 1970s, you see people sort of from community control advocates to white taxpayers, and people begin taking on the taxpayer lens as a way to sort of process this. They're not segregationists, they're taxpayers and they have rights, you know. They begin carving out these new public identities to sort of talk the old way, but to put forth new meanings. That my public means, okay, we have a shared public school, but it's in the suburbs. This is, you know, in the suburbs of Detroit. This is 50 miles from downtown. Well, that's so far. This is a public school, but that public school is too far away. And these are local public tax dollars. These are not statewide public tax dollars. Community control advocates, well, we're going to stay in Detroit and we're going to set up a network of freedom schools that we want public funding for to stay in the city. And we have a right to those dollars too, because so it comes very fractured and contested by what we mean by the public good by the 1970s. But with this ongoing political conflict about how we redefine public schools as we, in in effect, reconstruct a public school system, what you have is this inherent division, competing notions of the public good. And part of these notions of the public good essentially become, well, this is a private individual right. I have a right to choose where I want to go to school. That becomes one voice in this cacophony of voices about redefining public education. John's description of how local boundaries have been used to define and limit who gets to be part of the public, even sending transgressors to jail for violating those boundaries, raises a big question. What if our insistence on defining and paying for public education as predominantly a local responsibility also undermines its publicness? John says that tensions over local versus other more central authorities go back to the earliest days of public schools in this country. This angst over local versus federal is, is, is as real today as, as it was in the 18th century, and we don't have a solution for it. One of the problems we face with the local is that we've seen historically what happens when you just allow local communities to control their own schools. There's local prejudices and there's local policies that are highly problematic to those who don't fit into that very localized notion of what a good citizen is. If the federal government did not intervene in 1954, local communities protected by the constitution would continue to segregate based on race, gender, ability, class, language, etc. It's proven that you need a larger sort of entity who has a grasp of how the world is working and changing and becoming more inclusive to determine the values that must go into a local community. If you only left it to some local communities, these would be highly problematic, violent spaces. History has proven that. So to rely on this local argument and say, it's always been about the local, it should be about the local, we have the right, is ignoring an obvious historic fact that local communities have always struggled on their own to become more inclusive, to become more democratic, to to 
allow more access to those who have been historically marginalized. That's a fact. In fact, John argues that one way to think about the current push for parents' rights is as a continuation of this old local versus federal battle. That's because centering authority in the individual family and letting them determine how schools are run or what schools teach is as local as you can get. This local argument d- does not stand historically because it is this, this local ideal has never existed. Someone's local is very violent to people living in that community. The relying on local argument now, you know, just it doesn't hold water historically. So when people rely on this, well, family rights, individual rights, you know, parent rights now ignores that if you leave it to these individuals, you are going to exclude communities and children that we need in order to make this a more perfect union. You know, end of story. We've seen this again and again and again. And w- w- yes, it, here it is again. And just here's a fresh reminder. Historically, we cannot trust local control and governance by itself. We need these guidelines. We need this assistance from not dictatorship, not top-down, tightly controlled curriculum, right, which isn't happening. But we need this sort of collaborative local federal movement to sort of push us forward. So how then do we get back to some sense of public, even while acknowledging that the systems themselves are flawed? John concedes that this is a tough argument to make, especially when the voices arguing in favor of a completely privatized model of schooling are so loudly insistent right now. Those who are making the argument to privatize schools or that funding should follow the individual and individual families. It's a well-oiled, well-funded highly organized machine. And when the left tries to go at it in our democratic collaborative way, you oftentimes you're isolated, at times harassed, and your arguments fall apart because it sounds crazy at times, especially when you have just a very vocal, angry minority, all sharing the same talking point. The other thing too, is it's a hard argument to make and say, yes, there's hope. Because when you make the argument that we need to invest in the public good and we really need to invest in what's working in public schools and really sort of start with the students and parents who are committed to public schools, you have to admit that public schools can do better and they have to do better. And these are still problematic spaces. Still, John remains really hopeful. In fact, the end of his book is one of the most hopeful accounts I've read in a while. In the choice we face, I look in the last chapter, I sort of interview and look at, and then based on my own experience with community engagement and, and trying to sort of identify some of these solutions, I think the most hopeful aspects are looking and working with and listening to those who are going to their local public schools and who are invested in it. Those who are going to historically Black schools and are using this history to sort of shape policy. Those teachers and teacher unions who refuse to give up on the public school model. Those who are invested in historically, I mean, they've been going to public schools, they see the value in it. These parents and these young activists, these these students have the solutions. They know what works. It's just people aren't listening and people are choosing not to invest in them. Jennifer is going to laugh because I always want to tie everything back to our accountability system and to the ways in which we are encouraged to think very narrowly about the purpose of school and the ways in which we are encouraged to rate and rank schools as private goods. Um, But I think it's important here to just mention the ways in which 
measurement systems, and particularly those tied to stakes, like the present accountability systems that we see across all 50 states, encourage us to view schools as instrumental, right? That they produce a product, the product is student learning, Student learning can be measured by standardized test scores, and that plays into this meritocratic vision of schools as sorting devices that open up social and economic advantages for a quote-unquote aristocracy of talent, right? That this is embedded very much in the way we talk about school quality, in the way we measure school quality, in the way that we try to hold schools accountable. And it seems to me, John, that if we're serious about education as a public good, as something that returns value to all of us in communities, then we need to figure out how to talk about the public goods that schools produce. We need to figure out how to measure those things, perhaps not quantitatively, but in some way. We need to figure out how to have a broader public discourse about these things because we're not going to get there as long as our conversations revolve pretty narrowly around this vision of school as something that returns a pretty narrow value to individuals who then use it in order to get ahead or compete with each other in the market. Dr. Dave Stovall, just phenomenal speaker, just kind of lights up a room, if not burns it down when he enters it in terms of his analysis, said something at University of South Carolina that always stuck with me. And he asked, how do we measure service? When someone goes up for tenure, they measure service by committee work. Are you sitting on dissertations? What committees are you sitting on? What happens if we measured service by how many hours do you spend in the community? How many hours are you committed to public schools? How many hours are you putting in, whether it's developing a curriculum? We don't count that as service. What if we applied that to public schools? To what extent are our students engaged in the public? To what extent are our students developing stronger notions of self-efficacy? Are our students voting? Are they petitioning? Are they organizing around an issue that is important to them? Are they writing, perhaps helping write textbooks or conducting oral histories? We don't measure that. If we measure the work that students can do and that schools produce in, in these alternative quantitative ways, we would see what our public schools are producing and what the great work our teachers are doing. And we'd have a new sense, but we're just stuck in a privatized mindset. We want a quick number on a report card that we buy a house based on this number. So what does it take? A big thanks to our special guest, John Hale. Definitely check out his book, The Choice We Face, How Segregation, Race, and Power Have Shaped America's Most Controversial Education Reform Movement. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the latest research findings about the impact of Obama-era teacher evaluation reform and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. What does Christopher Rufo want? If that's a question you'd like to hear us try to answer, just head on over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. So, Jack, I thought that as a special treat, we could switch gears a bit and go back to an earlier time, a more innocent time. And I'm talking about the Obama era. 
And that would be that <laughs> incredible moment when seemingly every everyone who was anyone agreed that we really needed to crack down and crack down hard on teachers. And so there was just this really like powerful push to get states to line up. They're, basically, they were bribed to make their teacher evaluation systems tougher, right? To add teeth and to link them to the results of student standardized test scores. And we got some news this week about the ultimate result of the those systems. Why don't you just sum it up for us? <laughs> the result is, drum roll please, nothing. <laughs> you you heard it, folks. Well, you know, I was called by an Ed Week reporter and asked to comment on this. And it was a little hard to not be snarky there. Where it's like, what, what did you expect to find there? Did you think that you know, America's teachers were just waiting around with their best lesson plans in their desks for a day when, you know, they would be able to come to work afraid for their futures and would finally pull those plans out. Um, and where do you think all of the excellent replacement teachers are for all of the teachers who you are hoping to fire? I mean, just the, the theory of change was so naive there. And it really, I think, speaks to how problematic it is when there's an insular set of policy elites who are mostly operating in an echo chamber, agreeing with each other. Um, you know, we saw the same thing with regard to the massive bipartisan push for charter schools. Um, this was a part of the same bipartisanship where a set of uh, policy elites in and outside of government agreed that there were too many bad teachers or lazy teachers or, you know, whatever they thought about teachers. And they figured, well, we'll just get rid of the bad ones and replace them. This was literally a part of the theory of change, replace the worst teachers with average teachers. But again, betrays such a fundamental misunderstanding of the profession uh, that, you know, the reason why teachers are ineffective if they are ever ineffective, is because they don't work in the conditions that would be conducive for effectiveness, right? They teach too many hours. They teach too many students. They've got too much on their plates in terms of, you know, the day-to-day -day responsibilities of lesson planning and grading. Like if we were actually serious about strengthening the teaching profession, we would strengthen the teaching profession. And that would produce benefits for all educators rather than saying, well, we're going to wave our magic wand, create a bunch of adequate teachers, whatever that means, to replace our lowest performing teachers who, by the way, might be excellent in ways that are not being measured by standardized tests. Um, it was really sort of an offensively ludicrous theory of change uh, and, not surprisingly, no results. I think the other thing about it that is just so troubling is that you really, you go back and you see that they just, they had no sense at all that the bipartisan coalition that really drove this whole plan, that, you know, that it was temporary. And so, you know, they thought it would last forever. They clearly didn't foresee a time when you would start to see, you know, Republicans who are now the voice of the party calling for the abolition of public schools, right? In fact, even um, Arne Duncan penned an op-ed in the right-wing paper, the Washington Examiner with Mississippi former Governor Haley Barber, um, you know, saying, let's, 
let's focus on the things we agree on. And, you know, right now that just seems absolutely ludicrous. And I think what really just bothers me so much is that the relentless amping up of the failure narrative and and really just the complete inability to talk about schools as doing anything more than raising test scores, supplying future workers, or the kind of private gain that you were talking about has left Democrats really just unable to make any kind of case at all about why we have public schools. And at a moment when when we really need them to step up and make that case, they can't. Yeah, if we took all of the things that are not measured about teachers and about schools, we'd have a pretty long list there. And many of the things on that list could make a pretty compelling case for public education, for universal taxpayer-supported open access education. Um, you know, when we think about what we want schools to do beyond raise test scores or prepare young people to work somewhere out there in the economy and return value to gross domestic product, um, you know, we begin to realize that schools are anchors of communities, that schools are places that strengthen the social fabric, the political fabric of this nation. And you can see a lot of that happening in classrooms. I'll just, you know, quickly allude to a study that I'm in the midst of, along with Rachel White at Old Dominion University and a few others, where we're looking at um, the degree to which English language learners are actually incorporated into the life of a school and feel a sense of belonging. And what I see in the data there is that English language learners come into school and are actually feeling a pretty strong sense of belonging feel pretty connected to their teachers. And that's a really powerful outcome, right? We're taking young people who otherwise could be at the margins of our society. And by the time they're done with their experience, this is, of course, not everyone everywhere in this condition. But by the time that they're coming out of school, they speak English, they feel connected to their communities, they feel like they've been integrated into their environment. Like, that's a pretty amazing outcome, there. And it's the sort of thing that we really don't talk that much about. One of the strengths that we really don't celebrate in our schools. Well, thank you, Jack, for that feel-good example. Now it's time for me to get us back on the feel-bad track. (laughs) (laughs) We've reached that point in the show where I try to lure listeners over the paywall, and that's not what you should feel bad about. Our Patreon supporters should feel great. It's the topic. We call it In the Weeds. That's where Jack and I go and just sort of hold forth on some topic that's of great interest. And today we might as well call it In the Muck because the question we're going to be kicking around is, what does Christopher Rufo want? If this question appeals to you or you dread the answer, um, head over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of all the extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. And of course, that's not the only way you can support the show. That's right. There are lots of ways that people can support the show without selling off their NFT collections. Uh, So uh, our favorite way is when you share the show, uh, particularly in some way that makes it visible to us, people sometimes will tag the show's Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod and tweet at their colleagues and friends. That's always kind of fun. Um, make sure that you are a subscriber so that whenever an episode is released, you get it in your feed. Um, I'm going to steal uh, a trick from Nate DeMeo and say, Go take a loved one's phone and subscribe to the show for that person. Um, They will thank you later, I'm sure. Um, And, uh, you know, we've got a book. It's in libraries. Go get it. 
keep your library card active. Most of these libraries these days aren't even enforcing fines, so you know, keep it as long as you want. Uh, and I think anything else I usually say there, Jennifer? No, oh, five you stars. Got it. Five stars. That's right. You heard it here, listeners. Listening to Have You Heard is now compulsory, much like public <laughs> education itself. <laughs> On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. Thank you.